сильну державу, вільну державу, сучасну державу, приємну для життя державу. Основу для цього закладаємо зараз усі, хто воює заради України, усі, хто працює заради України, усі, хто допомагає. Most eyes are on the fighting in the Donbass as Ukraine's counteroffensive appears to get underway. But far from those front lines, a vital discussion is taking place in Western capitals. What will it take to rebuild Ukraine when the war is finally over? According to most estimates, Russia has already inflicted an estimated $400 billion in damage on Ukraine, which is twice the country's GDP in 2021. And the figure is only going to rise every day as the war continues, a fact starkly illustrated by the destruction of the Kakova Dam in eastern Ukraine this week. This has all sparked serious and high-level discussions about establishing a Marshall Plan to be rebuild Ukraine after the war. But where is all that money going to come from? How is it going to be distributed? And what safeguards will be attached to prevent corruption? Well, I got just the guests to do a deep dive and how to build back Ukraine better. So stick around. Hello from my temporary office studio in Washington, D.C.'s trendy DuPont Circle neighborhood, and welcome to the Power Vertical Podcast, which is produced by the University of Texas Arlington's McDowell Center for Global Studies in partnership with the Atlantic Council. I'm your host. My name is Brian Whitmore. I'm an assistant professor of practice at the McDowell Center and a non-resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council's Eurasia Center. Joining me from Washington, D.C.'s historic Capitol Hill neighborhood is Josh Rudolph, a senior fellow and head of Malign Finance at the German Marshall Fund's Alliance for Security Democracy, who coordinated work on Russia's sanctions at the White House's National Security Council under President Barack Obama, and who also served at USAID, the IMF, and the U.S. Treasury Department after a career on Wall Street. Josh is also one of the co-authors of the recently published report, and must read, I would add, report, for a Marshall plan for Ukraine. Welcome back to The Vertical, Josh. Always great being in The Vertical with two friends, Brian. Great to have you back. You've been vertical list for a while, uh, and The Vertical has been jock list for a while, so it's good to, to remedy that. Also joining us from the uber-hit borough of Brooklyn, New York, is journalist and longtime Russian watcher Casey Michelle, author of the book American Kleptocracy. Casey's also the author of a recently published and must-read article in The Atlantic called Make Russia A. Welcome back to The Vertical, Casey. Great to be here, Brian, and it's great to be among two friends as well. Great to have three friends all together here. Uh, Josh, I know you have a lot to say about how to make a Marshall Plan for Ukraine transparent and accountable, steps we need to take to prevent corruption, and we will for sure dive into that in in a bit. But to get us started, because I know you've been deeply involved in these discussions, how do things look right now as we approach the Ukraine Recovery Conference? Um, which is going to be taking place in London later this month on June 21st and 22nd. What kind of private and public money is being raised? How far along is the Marshall Plan for Ukraine at this stage? Well, considering the scale, like you said, of the investment that is going to be needed, it's still in relatively early stages. The most urgency up to this point has been on the immediate needs, understanding and understandably, like, closing this year's Ukrainian budgetary gap, which was helped by an IMF program. And, you know, that has taken financial commitments, tens of billions of dollars. What we do not have yet are the commitments to the hundreds of billions that'll be needed for for reconstruction, nor are we likely to get those financial pledges at the conference in London in two weeks from now. 
But the British government, they, they, as hosts of the conference together with the Ukrainians, they, they still have a respectable ambition for the conference, which is to make it the moment when the, the international business community declares that they are ready to invest in Ukraine at scale, provided that reform conditions continue to be met. And the, the Brits are hoping to line up the, the structures, instruments, strategy that will be needed to attract that foreign investment. And so, yeah, appreciate you mentioning our recent GMF report toward a Marshall Plan for Ukraine, where we recommend what four areas of those enabling structures should be, war insurance for private investment, energy leapfrogging to get into the EU's net zero future, making Russia pay through its assets, which we'll discuss. Casey is the better expert on uh, than me in the second half. But then nearest and dearest to me um, is the you know transparency and accountability of reform. So it's not just because I wrote that chapter that I tell you that the anti-corruption is probably the area where we're most likely to get concrete reforms coming out of the London conference, where we're specifically, we're urging the, the British government together, the Ukrainians, to write into their co-chair's statement uh, more than just a nice story about Ukrainian reform over the past decade, which has been impressive, but to, like five concrete pledges that the donors could make, um, could could deliver on over the next year, prioritizing conditionality, using Ukraine's new dream transparency tool, setting up a Ukrainian civil society advisory board, preserving decentralization, you know, creating a fusion cell of auditors in Kiev so the donors can follow the money. Happy to to talk about any of those? Yeah, no, I, I would like to yeah. dive into a lot of those. The one that really caught my attention as I was reading the report was the um, the, the the insurance aspect of it, because this is something I was just in Kiev uh, speaking at the Kiev Security Conference, and on, on the panels on economic recovery uh, and, and Marshall Plan, that was something that kept coming up, the, the need to create a confident atmosphere for um, for outside investors. And I, I just wanted to just, because you've got a lot of experience in this this area, both in the private and public sector, how what is the public private mix here? How does this how how is how how do you see this kind of shaking out in terms of public and private monies? Yeah, I mean it's it's still a moving target because right now we don't have the big commitments, the amounts on on either of 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 the two, and there will be sequencing, and you know they are related. The private sector would love always to come in after other other sources mm -hmm. to be accompanied by taxpayer uh, resources to, you know, be securitizing and coming in and, you know, by with the, the, the Russian assets or, you know, but then also um, to, of course, have security guarantees in the, before we even talk about war insurance as an instrument. So there's a lot that the public sector needs to be doing beyond even the ones that I was most focused on, the anti-corruption reforms. Um, to to attract investment. Uh, Casey, you've been writing a lot about this, among other things. We're going to dive into your article about well, reparations and Russian assets in, in the second half. But in terms of the the, the, the structure of this, this Marshall Plan for Ukraine, do you have anything to add here that we should be looking at? Well, I just want to kind of leapfrog on, on some of the things that Josh has been saying. And obviously, he's been doing, he and his colleagues have been doing phenomenal work in this space. And, and frankly, in a space that deserves far more attention, far more focus, far more energy than it's already seen. I mean, just to pull things back to the very kind of 10,000 foot level, um, wars, as we know, are not fought only on the battlefield. And the solutions, whether it's negotiated or otherwise, to ending these wars are not only those in the military realm. Obviously, we have the political components uh, baked into that. 
But even beyond that, we have what, again, Josh has been working on, the economic realities that follow on thereafter, which is why it's so important to get these kind of playbooks laid out, to have these discussions ahead of time so that we're not caught flat-footed when, you know, for instance, the Ukrainian counteroffensive succeeds beyond what I think a lot of folks are still expecting. And all of a sudden we find ourselves with a new reality, which is, again, why I'm so grateful Josh has been working on this. But one of those areas I really wanted to talk about during the first half, which, again, Josh mentioned, is the anti-corruption space. Um, mm -hmm. Another overlooked area of remarkable reform, not only just in the past year, 18 months or so, but frankly, over the past decade in which Ukraine has been one of the very clear case studies of success as it pertains to implementing domestic anti-corruption efforts, which is, again, I think a success that a lot of folks in Washington and London and Brussels still, frankly, overlook. Um, and I will say, you know, I, I can't help, you know, again, Brian, you've had so many conversations about Western policy regarding Ukraine during the war, after the war. And I, I really can't help but think back to the response we saw in 2014, the kind of foot dragging, the kind of hand wringing concerns, mm -hmm. I suppose, understandable in the sense of the U.S. and the West not providing the necessary arms or response to the Ukrainians because of the very real concerns about corruption and corrupt networks domestically in Ukraine. And I think there's still this kind of image or maybe hangover of Ukraine as this country that's kind of rotted through with these corrupt networks. We don't realize just how much success we have seen. Yeah. And again, to get back to Josh's work, compiling, collating, organizing those successes that we can actually begin looking through them, the impact on the ground and where things need to go. You know, again, all of which is a, a way for me to kind of turn things to Josh and say, where have these successes been on the anti-corruption front? Where does Ukraine still need to go? Yeah, that's that's something good for you to die. And that's where I wanted to go with you, Josh, because I know you and um, Ambassador Norman Eisen co are co-authoring a piece on this that's coming out soon, if I'm not mistaken. Um, so, yeah, we're, that's that's exactly where I wanted to go with that. So thanks for the segue, Casey. <laughs> <laughs> thanks. Um, and, and appreciate the kind words, um, Casey, especially with you having looked as closely as ever at some of the corruption cases, including on Kol Kolomoisky in your book, American Kleptocracy. Um, Ambassador Eisen was also a co-author on the recent GMF paper that had that, that covered the range of issues for G7 donors to consider. Now, the, the two of us are about to publish, we'll publish at London, um, another paper de dedicated entirely to anti-corruption that, you know, sort of in the direction where, where Casey was headed just there is, among other things, you know, if if corruption in Ukraine is going to feature in, we hope it doesn't, but if it does, in the upcoming debates over continuation of security assistance in the United States, we're kind of at this time, wanting to ensure that we've we've framed the that issue set with real true facts about the unprecedented progress that Kiev has made over the past decade, while also making recommendations for how to continue investing in that anti-corruption system that's working. But it, it does require constant cultivation, and there there are mistakes. So on the one hand, we'll talk about the 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 world leading transparency systems that the Ukrainians have built, the specialized anti-corruption agencies, decentralization, sectoral governance reform, but then also you know address the challenges like the, the transparency systems that have you know were originally necessarily turned off by martial war, uh, sorry martial law, but now need to be turned back on. There are some recent misguided applications of prosecutorial discretion by SAPU, which is now criminally prosecuting some reputable reformers who don't appear to have engaged in corruption. There are some top 
appointees in Zelensky's office who are not as committed to rule of law reform as as he is. So we'll have 25 you know, recommendations for Ukraine, for the G7, for the donors, for the EU, and for the U.S. Congress. Because ultimately the point is that advancing Ukraine's anti-corruption mission is vital to the international rules-based order. Yeah. And so all stakeholders in that order need to be doing everything they can to pitch in. And there's been, there. you're, you're right to point out, just there have been a lot of reforms since 2014 in particular. Um, the Anti-Corruption Court, the Anti-Corruption Bureau, and all, and, and all of that. Nevertheless, and Ukraine has inched up. It's, got, it's gotten better on the Transparency's Anti-Corruption Perception Index. It's not yet, you know, it, it, it's not Canada. Let's put it that way, right? Um, it's, so it's, it's, you know, it's, it's, um, it's on the better side of the post-Soviet states, uh, excluding the Baltic states, of course, which are near the top of that list. But, uh, but Casey, how do you see, because you have written a lot about this, um, the oligarchs have kind of gone silent during the war they're they're still there certainly uh how do you where do you see do you see the glass half full or half empty here in terms of these these questions because this really is a chance to build ukraine back better there is a U.S. opportunity right now to really transform this country for the better a absolutely brian and and i and i say um i would see maybe the glass even more than half full maybe that's just part and parcel of my kind of congenital optimism about where things are and where things are going you know as we have seen as you just mentioned brian the oligarchs have been really to a remarkable extent, a non-entity to a far greater degree than even I kind of assumed. I mean, I asked about this in Kiev, and there, you know, some of them are giving, you know, giving money, of course, and things like that. Sure. But like, you haven't heard anything about Akhmetov. You've had heard very little from Kolomoisky. It's it's remarkable. Kolomoisky's cases, uh, uh, prosecutorial cases, are ongoing in, in in British courts, in Israeli courts. He's kind of tied up in that. Uh, we saw Ukrainian investigators targeting Dmitry Firtash recently. I mean, these are really the heavy hitters of the kind of the pre-2022 and even before that, obviously, pre-2014 era. Akhmetov, I'm not entirely sure what he's up to. I mean, it is really a class of characters that was, you know, sitting pretty and riding high even through the mid-2010s. And obviously, we had concerns about Kolomoisky's relationship with Zelensky during, an, uh, um, uh, during the election. Uh, during the election. Uh, and into his presidency. And yet again, they have been these kinds of non-factors to a remarkable degree. Um, it has been quite impressive to see. And I, I will say, just as one quick final point as it pertains to Ukraine's improvement on that, Brian, I know you mentioned Ukraine is not quite Canada, but if I'm going to just plug the, the notion, the topic, the reality of kleptocracy for a moment, we know the Canada's and the U.S.'s and the U.K.'s of the world are the destination countries for mm -hmm. so many illicit networks. So again, right. while Ukraine is cleaning up its house domestically, we still have plenty of room for cleaning up our houses in Washington, in Ottawa, in London, and beyond. It takes two to tango as it pertains to these transnational illicit finance networks. Yeah, no, that's true. And Josh, this is something you and I have kind of talked about on this podcast in the in the past, this kind of even before the war, this this uh, notion of anti-corruption here at home as a national security um, issue. This is do you see this kind of accelerating those efforts, all those things that we were kind of calling for, many of which have been implemented with regard to Russian dark money. Um, but 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 do you see this war as kind of a, a, an impetus for for further reform here at home? Yes, yeah, certainly, certainly. Since some of that was underway in the Biden administration with their anti-corruption strategy, you know, treasury on, on real estate, um, beneficial ownership, um, and but but definitely it created both a political window and real needs, you know, a year ago to advance some some other efforts as well, particularly 
enforcement and sanctions evasion and you know the, the things that the the justice department has asked for around ways to improve statute and the creation of klepto capture and the really powerful uh swift enforcement work mm. that, like enforcement of sanctions violations has become more prominent powerful and sexy than ever before it used to be this like but with no offense to my friends at OFAC, like an office within OFAC, within the annex of the Treasury building that did enforcement. And now it's it's driven at the highest levels of the Justice Department. And you're seeing FBI jackets walking up yachts and, you know, and and seizing and finding eggs and whatever these like fancy things. Anyway, it's 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 been good work. Yeah. How do you find the like the Ukrainians responding to this? Because there is. A, a sense that like don't pick us on, on us about corruption right now we're trying to fight a war and it, it's it's dicey now my my answer to that is this is another vector of russian malign influence like this was corruption was what 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 russia was using before the war went kinetic to, to, to kind of exert control over ukraine how do you find our ukrainian colleagues uh response to this i i think it has evolved throughout the past year certainly in the first i don't know six months or so of the war, both the Ukrainian government and even civil society and investigative journalists, they were they were being they were particularly careful about this, even doing things that, you know, is outside of the, as Casey knows as a journalist, the normal like business of like sometimes in those early days when you come across that Ukrainian investigative journalists might come across a scoop and, you know, the first thing to do isn't necessarily to publish it, but to go to the authorities and say, make this right. Um, so they right. have to, and 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 when they, but then when they don't, and in some cases they didn't, they they got back to doing their jobs, or, or, or like in in a more normal way over the past six months, and you had good reporting, um, and and sometimes aggressive reporting by investigative journalists showing that Ukraine is capable of doing more than one thing, capable of fighting on both fronts, the war criminals and the oligarchs and internal you know corruption all at the same time and then you saw the system kicking in with nabu you know raids and investigations and going up to zelensky firing corrupt officials and then even in the past i think a month ago that you know detaining the head of the supreme court we've all known the supreme court is corrupt for years they had a terrible selection process and to, so to me the real news there is that nabu is taking action and the guy is getting fired and frankly I would appreciate that kind of accountability for Supreme Court ethics uh, violations here in the United States. Like they're doing good work. <laughs> Touche. <laughs> right. No, it's it is. This is one of the great untold stories of just how well the Ukrainian state is functioning during this war. It seems to be functioning better than it was functioning in peacetime, which is remarkable. It's like the opposite of a failed state in a lot, which is which is really incredible. Casey, I know you wanted to jump in and I cut you off. So sure. Well, I, I was going to say, Frank, to, to that point, Brian, it's not only functioning better than it was prior to the uh, to the war itself, or at least prior to the expanded invasion. At this point, it's functioning better than most of its Western partners, especially <laughs> in the digital space. I mean, God knows there are so many lessons that Western partners have to continue learning from the Ukrainians on the ground. But I, I just want to say, you know, kind of to echo what I was saying earlier, I... I guess I would say I don't necessarily begrudge Ukrainian partners any of the frustration they have felt, you know, again, on the receiving end of perfectly valid criticism, because this is a kind of frustration we have seen for years and years, long predating the expanded invasion of, of last year of Western officials, Western partners, especially from places like the U.S. or the U.K., 
um, you know, going to partners in Ukraine or elsewhere and saying, clean this up, fix this, implement this policy because your anti-corruption regime is not satisfactory whatsoever. And all the Ukrainians have to do is go back to their American or British partners and say, that's all fine and good. Let's talk about the American real estate industry. Let's talk about the British shell company industry. Let's talk about XYZ, other Western industry. That is, again, the sink for the laundering mechanism for all of these illicit funds. So, um, again, lessons of plenty all across the board. Right. No, and I think, yeah, that, that point is well taken. You both made it. We need to understand that we are the facilitators of this. Um, and we bear some responsibility. I wanted to pick up on something, Josh, that you alluded to briefly earlier, and I want to drill a little deeper into it. And this is that what the United States and other partners could do to sustain support for Ukraine. Because, again, this corruption issue, if those who do not want to continue aid to Ukraine, and they are right now on the fringes um, of the American political system, um, but they're there and they could metastasize uh, easily. Um, one of the things they're going to kind of be playing this anti-corruption thing, and, and they don't really care about facts right <laughs> you, you'll you'll hear you know without naming names some u.s politicians directly repeating kremlin talking points um about about zelensky and, and and so on how josh what can we do in this space to really uh help facilitate the the, the sustainability of u.s and western support for ukraine going forward yeah and so each of the actors in the stakeholders in the international system, like I was where I left off before, has has a role, a different role to play and real investments to make to advance Ukrainian anti-corruption. Of course, one of those stakeholders being the Ukrainians, they have to you know, finalize their constitutional court reform and really keep cultivating these specialized anti-corruption agencies, turn back on asset declarations and other rule of law reforms. The EU, uh, you, you know, Accession to the EU is has to be the central organizing anchor mm. of of recovery, right? Just like how the original Marshall Plan, you know, laid the foundation for the founding of the EU, this Marshall Plan needs to be about delivering the world's most strategically, you know, vital frontline country into the EU. Like how the the original Marshall Plan was strategically designed to contain communism. You know, this one has to be built to counter corruption because, like you were the first to say, Brian, corruption is the new communism. So we have recommendations there about how to invest in invest investigative journalism and anti-corruption programming and new TV no news so that the oligarchs can't own it all and more. That's the EU. And then in the United States, the, by far the most important thing to do is is to continue appropriating ample security aid without conditions. Um, co you know, Congress should also stipulate that macrofinancial and reconstruction assistance will be conditioned on the continued delivery of anti-corruption reforms in Ukraine. And so, yeah, we'll, we'll offer about five, five you know, legislative steps that Ukraine's many supporters in Congress could take in an attempt to bring on board just enough House Republicans to pass security assistance while also doing real important things for Ukrainian anti-corruption. Right. And you think that the votes are there in the Senate, the problem's really going to be in the House, it sounded like from, from what, what you, the way you just Yeah, yeah. But, but, but when I say many supporters, even in the House, you know, the, the, the there's, there's so many, the, the committees like HVAC, they're, they've been doing terrific work. Mm -hmm. They've been bringing in the inspectors general to talk about everything that they are doing to, to, um, to, to, to follow the money, that whole process, the way that they've, the, the, the reporting from the IGs in the past couple of months, 
um, on how they're coordinating the hearings and the explanations that they've been, have convinced me that 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 their approach is working and is less risky than creating a cigar. And so really, Congress can even do some smaller things like just codify that current system of coordination that the the IGs have taken it upon themselves to to organize or create that fusion cell of auditors in key. Because when the IGs come and they testify at Congress, the biggest blind spot that they warn that they that they face, well, it's two is one is they don't yet have boots on the ground in Kiev. But then two is that when when American tax dollars go into these big multi-country funds at like the World Bank or the UN agencies, that it's kind of a black hole that 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 those multilaterals don't want American IGs looking into. And so we need to kind of force them to mm-hmm. share information and work together on the ground and keep. And there's more that, that Congress can do, but some are moderate steps, not too right. I think it's really interesting. You raised that, you know, of course the original Marshall plan. I was um, on the long train ride from the Polish border to Kiev. I was reading uh, the twilight struggle, what the cold war teaches us about great power rivalry today by by Hal Brands, interestingly enough, a book that came out about a month before the big war started, before the full-scale invasion started. But I was just struck repeatedly as I was reading about the 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 um the policy at the at the end of the Second World War, and particularly from 1947 onward. The parallels today are just so striking, um, and that this is the the, the reconstruction of Ukraine is, is it, I've often said Ukraine is the West Germany of our time, and now it really is the West Germany of our time okay so you wanted you wanted to add something well, i was gonna say brian actually when you were reading that book and in your in your previous research as it pertains to the marshall plan do you remember are there any specific elements within the broader marshall plan itself dedicated to anti-corruption or concerns about illicit finance itself and i'm i ask that because you know to what we were talking about just a moment ago this this elevation of concerns about kleptocracy illicit finance into a very real national security concern was that present during the Marshall Plan? No, it, it, it was present, and there were very, very strict controls from the, on the original Marshall Plan. I mean, basically, American officials were distributing the aid almost physically at the local level. I mean, it was like Josh could probably speak to this better th- than I have, but those those concerns were there, but they're not. I don't think they were as great as they are now. The point then was to create the free world that was used to be called the free world, basically, to make sure that the part of the world that was democratic um, and not just the West of the broader West, the global West, as we call it now, that it was secure, that it was economically prosperous, um, that, 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 that didn't, it didn't have kind of destabilizing inequality. Um, there were, there was a real concerns and that this, again, in this neoliberal age, or maybe we're coming out of this neoliberal age. Now, this is another kind of thing I like to harp on is that the, we could learn a lot from the post-World War II consensus not just in the security architecture we created, not just in the economic architecture, not just in the reconstruction of, 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 of post-war Europe, but also in that we we consciously created an inclusive social contract um, that, that that was was mindful of the fact that inequality is very, very destabilizing and it forces people to extreme ideologies of the left and the right um, and had in the course of the 30s and 40s did it in both directions. So I think this, this is one of these big lessons I would learn um, from today. Anything to add on that? They, I, I like Josh's uh, note about, and this actually another place I wanted to go to, was that the integration of a Marshall Plan for Ukraine with Ukraine's EU accession. I mean, and, and jo- I, 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 like, I'm wondering now if, if, if 
you are going to have buy-in across the EU for that? Or do you need buy-in across the EU? Do you just need the big players to basically make this to, to make this happen? Josh, how do you see the politics of this playing out in Europe? Well, it's 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 multifaceted, right? I mean, in first of all, Ukraine has to finish accomplishing the seven preconditions for 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 negotiations they're well on their way they're more than two-thirds of the way there they have to get constitutional court reform done and then they'll basically be there home free and then that'll be assessed in October and and then will be the the more politically difficult with the member states process of of starting negotiations and um, I don't think my sense is that a lot, like I'm not so much like a, a a Brussels EU political watcher, so it's kind of more of a vague sense that like that is not going to be as swift and timely mm-hmm. as the three of us would would like it to be. <laughs> um, yeah, you're looking at at you know years throughout even this decade, which is which is would be frustrating and grinding, but the you know. The way, but without any actors standing so strongly in the way as for it to just stand still, and so the gears will continue to to grind. DG Near in Brussels has built up a a team that's working on that. It's the same team that is also very closely um, integrated into the multi agency donor coordination platform that's that's managing. Uh, recovering reconstruction. So I, I'm optimistic that the EU is organizing bureaucratically to be able to sync the two the two up. Right. Um, but but it'll be a challenge because these two things can really turbocharge each other. I mean, you really could have this kind of virtuous circle um, that could just it could benefit all of us, um, not least of all the Ukrainians. Casey, anything to add on this on the, on the political dynamic side of this in, in, in Europe? I mean, I'm watching, I'm a little worried about this. I think the Germans are on board, and if the Germans and the French are on board, it usually drags the rest of the EU along. The East is going to be totally on board. Oh, yeah. uh, you know, I worry about some of the usual suspects creating problems. Absolutely. No, and, and uh, you know, I think the less said about the Hungarians right now, perhaps the better. But I should say that, uh, yes, we have certainly seen indicators, especially out of places like Paris, about a newfound willingness for EU expansion. And I should say not just in Ukraine itself, but also in the Western Balkans. And, and Brian, maybe that's a conversation for another uh, episode down the line. But it is worth remembering just at the end of the day that the initial spark for the Euromaidan revolution, the revolution of dignity in 2013, 2014, it was not NATO expansion. It wasn't even necessarily aimed at ousting Yanukovych himself. No. It was EU accession. And everything flows from that. Everything yep. follows from that. And we just have to remember, remember that day in, day out, this is where it all began with with Ukraine's presence yep. in the European Union. Yeah, yeah you know, I've, I've often said the first, uh, the first, the Ukrainians are the first Europeans because they are the first to die under that flag. I mean, you know, they, they, they were waving that EU flag along with the Ukrainian flag on, on the Euromaidan in 2013-2014. Well, that's a good way to segue into our next section. In a few moments, we will continue our discussion and look at that matter of the $300 billion in Russian assets frozen by Western governments and how that could be part of Ukraine's recovery package. I'd like to remind you, you are listening to the Power Vertical Podcast, which is produced by the University of Texas Arlington's McDowell Center for Global Studies in partnership with the Atlantic Council. I'm your host. My name is Brian Whitmore. I'm an assistant professor of practice at UT McDowell Center and a non-resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council's Eurasia Center. Joining me from Washington, D.C.'s historic Capitol Hill neighborhood is the one and only Josh Rudolph. 
a senior fellow and head of Malign Finance, German Marshall Fund's Alliance for Securing Democracy, who coordinated work on Russia sanctions at the White House's National Security Council under President Barack Obama, and who has also served at USAID, the IMF, and the U.S. Treasury Department after a career on Wall Street. Josh is also the author, uh, the, one of the co-authors of the must-read recently published report toward a Marshall Plan for Ukraine. And joining us from the uber-hit borough of Brooklyn, New York, is journalist and longtime Russia watcher Casey Michelle, author of the book American Kleptocracy. Casey's also the author of the recently published and must-read article in The Atlantic, Make Russia Pay, which we will be discussing in this segment. I'd also like to remind you to subscribe to Power Virtual Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Twitter, Stitcher, Spotify, SoundCloud, and TuneIn. If you do, please leave us a big, fat five-star rating and review as that helps our visibility. You can also access the podcast, read the Power Vertical blog, and access all Power Vertical products at powervertical.org. And for the time being, you can still follow us on the Twitter at Power Vertical. Кожен у світі, хто так чи інакше допомагає державі терористу обходити санкції, кожен у світі, кого Росія використовує для постачання зброї, компонентів, обладнання. Кожен такий суб'єкт має відчути повну силу вільного світу. So Casey, you did not mince words in the headline of your Atlantic article. It simply read Make Russia Pay. Um, you made a strong argument that the 300 billion in frozen Russian assets should be used for Ukraine's reconstruction and recovery. Um, lay out your case for our listeners here. I'm, I, 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 I recommend everybody read the article. We'll include it in the show notes. Um, but make out your case for our, for our listeners here. Yeah, thanks, Brian. Look, this is a pretty straightforward argument that I don't know that I need to go necessarily too much detail about. But if folks remember at the beginning of the war, the, the beginning of this expanded invasion early last year, one of the perhaps most surprising moves, I think surprising for a lot of folks in Moscow, is that Western government after Western government announced that they were going to be freezing outright the Russian central bank assets that they hosted in their countries. This was the U.S., this was Japan, this was uh, Germany, France, uh, even places like Austria, saying not only are we going to implement sanctions against a number of Russian officials, Russian oligarchic um, uh, figures, uh, businesses, banks, so on and so forth, we are going to specifically freeze access to any movement through these Russian central bank holdings. Now, again, I think a lot of folks in Moscow were very surprised because this was an unprecedented move, mm -hmm. not only in terms of scope, but also the unified approach across the West that these Western governments uh, took. And this is no small pot of money. This is, by best estimates that we have, about $300 billion, and maybe even a little bit more than that. And for context, the most recent estimates out of the World Bank as it pertains to the cost of Ukrainian reconstruction, which continue to rise day in and day out, is about $400 billion. Mm -hmm. So again, if we take that in context, that means that the frozen Russian central bank assets are worth about 75%, three quarters of the, of the price tag right now. Of right, the price now. right now. Now again, that is going to grow. The Russian central bank assets are not going to grow. So the longer we wait, the greater that discrepancy actually is in and of itself. Now, it's all fine and good to freeze these assets. This is perfectly within the legal right. But the next step that I argue in the piece and that others before me have argued as well, including Lawrence Tribe in The New York Times, Phil Zellico in Foreign Affairs and elsewhere, is that it's not enough to just sit on these funds and let them waste away or accrue interest. 
these funds actually have to be put to use. And there is no better way for these funds to be put to use than return them to Ukraine, return them to the Ukrainians for whom they have every moral right. And now we have to make sure they have every legal right as well, because this is the big question right now. This is the big question facing policymakers that, you know, I tried to thread through. I tried to summarize on my end. But look, I'm just one lonely writer here in Brooklyn doing what I can. This is for folks in D.C. and London and Ottawa and elsewhere to decide. There has to be some kind of legal architecture for not just freezing, but seizing these funds and repatriating them outright. And the struggle right now, the big issue right now is that because these funds are dispersed over a range of nations, a range of different domestic legal infrastructures, we don't have one clear answer. There's no one flip we can uh, switch that will return these funds to Ukraine outright. So what we have right now are discussions in Washington, discussions in London, discussions in Paris, in Vienna and elsewhere. How do we reformat our domestic legal architecture to make sure that the Ukrainians get these funds? And beyond that, and I will say that the, the counter arguments to this do have merit. I mean, I wanted to address those as well, because the concerns are what precedent does this? Exactly. What does this do for faith in American or broader Western investments writ large? I mean, this is why we see figures like Secretary of Treasury Janet Yellen not being full-throated supporters of this, perfectly understandably so, because of the precedent this would set. Now, again, my counter-argument to that is this is an unprecedented assault on a prone neighbor, on a state that willingly gave up its nuclear arsenal, only to be invaded and carved up by a nuclear power that is engaging in, certainly as I've argued elsewhere, genocidal policies. I mean, this is even before talking about what we saw with this dam explosion over the past few days. This is, um, as far as I can tell, an unprecedented assault on the global order writ large. And if this this doesn't cross that threshold for repatriating these assets, I'm not sure what would. Well, and you mentioned Philip Zelko, who I who was uh, speaking at this conference I just attended in Kiev, and he made the argument. If I'm, I'm I hope I'm I'm correctly uh, re- re- remembering how he how he put it, that there is precedent for this. Um, the seizure of Saddam Hussein's assets after the invasion of Kuwait in in, in 1990. Um, it, so there is precedent. Now, Josh, you've you've worked in government and actually have to deal with things like the legality of things like this. Is this can this be done legally in your in in your view and can this be done in a way that does not damage the the credibility of of western financial institutions it depends on who you ask it is hotly debated and there are different views across countries and levels of government and within organizations even including the german russia fund like i am all for seizing Russian assets as a policy matter. It's the right thing to do morally, politically, fiscally, strategically. And in my view, that should be enough. Casey has made that argument more cogently than I would. So yeah, I should take the discussion further by by sharing more about what, uh, like the resistance that Casey was just getting into. And there's more, there's more there. Um, and it is important because it has major policy implications, the biggest being that seizure is not likely to happen this year or next year or on any time frame under which the Ukrainians need hundreds of billions of dollars. So, you know, the donors cannot wait to come in after that source mm-hmm. of funds. So the way that I hear about this playing out from friends in government, in G7 governments, multiple of them, it's pretty similar. The head of state rightly tells his cabinet Go figure out how to make this happen. The ministries then come back 
saying it's an impossible mission, sir. I'm sorry. Uh, and then the the head of state says, not good enough. Go back, do better. And it goes around and around. So there's basically two camps there within the not two camps, but, but the, unfortunately, they're in alignment to different different sources of issues of risk. The one is the one that Casey mentioned, the finance ministry is the Janet Yellen's of the world warning that this could endanger the faith, the stability in the international financial system. I, I too, do not, you know, as a, with a financial economic background, I don't wave that issue off. It is important. Um, I, I think I probably share Casey's point about the precedent. You know, you hear with regards to the precedent that the big risk would be China rotating out of dollars, um, which, you know, to that, I say, if that's so that they can invade Taiwan with impunity, then like all the more reason to credibly signal that there would be a cost to that. But beyond China, it's it's a reasonable concern. The dollar was less stable in the decade after the 1956 Suez crisis when we showed a, will, a willingness to weaponize it. Uh, I think it's a risk that can be managed, though, by taking action in concert with the G7 to include euros and yen and pounds. However, the second side of it, like that, the need to act in concert runs into this gnarly interaction with with the the, the legal side. The international law experts at the, the foreign and justice ministries who you know would come back to the head of state and say, first of all, it's illegal. And and second of all, it would be contested at different speeds in different jurisdictions, and we would never get all countries to be able to act in unison. I mean, Casey mentioned needing to restructure domestic laws. That has not happened anywhere yet, except for Canada. You know, in the United States, under current law, you would probably have to argue that either the United States is at war with Russia or fitted into like an exemption for terrorism, either of which could be challenged in court. At the UN, you you could try to bundle it together as like in Zelikow's novel idea of collective security being challenged, but some resolutions could be vetoed by China and Russia at the Security Council. Others could be appealed at the national level if they go through the General Assembly. The EU is probably the most complicated because you need unanimity and you've got challenges on both sides. Like you mentioned the Hungarians and the Slovakians or whoever for the usual reasons. But the Germans, too, have concerns about the rule of law. Most of the assets are domiciled in Belgium, where the prime minister says he's looking into solutions, but nothing concrete yet. They don't want to lose that financial position. And even if you get them all to agree, I'm, I'm, I'm told that the European Court of Justice would throw it out. So it's like a super multifaceted legal nut to crack. And there are smart lawyers who I'm thankful are working on it, like the Zelikos and Zelics of of the world. And they've got novel ideas. We at GMF too, we recently came out with this as part of the a chapter in that paper um, that you mentioned, Brian. We've We've got an approach that we think stands a better chance of being sustained legally across jurisdictions, which is to establish a claims conference. And there's precedent for that. It would have the power to adjudicate claims over time with or without or a settlement with Russia. They're all like important efforts. I hope they succeed. But we need to go on funding security assistance and lining up commitments for reconstruction and recovery on the presumption that it's going to take years, maybe even right. decades to confiscate. So this is not just a political decision. It's not just a question of political will. There are very real legal roadblocks, potential and, and, and obvious legal roadblocks in multiple jurisdictions. Um, oh, Casey, you uh, you still make the strong argument. How, 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 would, how do you, I mean, because what Josh was spelling out here is not his opposition to it. He's in favor of it. 
but there are these roadblocks. How do you circumvent right. those roadblocks? Oh, absolutely. No, look, I think Josh, again, very cogently laid out all of the opposition that we have seen, which is perfectly valid, legal or otherwise. And, and I will say, just kind of pulling back, you know, the reasons that I have for the optimism as it pertains to utilizing this as a means of Ukrainian reconstruction or potentially something similar down the line of Ukrainian reconstruction is, you know, I frankly, you know, thinking back to even as little as two years ago, and Josh, you know, correct my memory if it's, if it's faulty. I mean, I must say, I don't remember ever seeing any argument, legal or otherwise, floated as it pertains to something in the scope of Russian central bank assets, again, for a country that is not at war with the United States. I don't remember ever seeing any kind of full-throated, wholehearted, uh, detailed analysis of the legality, of the potentiality, of the political fallout of this before. And all of which is a way of saying we have seen the conversation on this pushed far further, far quicker than I certainly ever anticipated, or maybe you could have even ever considered. Yeah. Well, we all remember that a swift ban was crazy. Yeah, right, 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 right exactly. Applying javelins to the Ukrainians was the red line, right? How far we have come. And you know, again, speaking to some of the major proponents of this in the U.S., including folks like um, uh, Larry Tribe, who's up at Harvard, you know, he and Gary Kasparov and their organization at Renew Democracy Initiative is um, a sponsoring a new legal analysis that should be coming at some point in the next month or two. Uh, again, looking at the U.S. in particular to run through all the legal concerns and potential remedies therein, all of which is to say the conversations here are are, are ongoing. The real the biggest issue, as, as Josh did mention, I think on my end, is the fracturing of the EU based countries or the European countries because of all the different domestic elements underneath the rubric of uh, EU um, regulations writ large. And again, I, I don't profess to be in any kind of expert as it pertains to EU regulations, but on both the political as well as on the legal side, I do think the uphill battle is going to be there because my sense is in the U.S., the conversation, the kind of Overton window, if you like, has begun moving in this direction. And I, mm. I presume based on that, we will continue seeing that moving forward. Um, I know we mentioned Phil Zellico. There was another great legal analysis from a, um, uh, a very well-respected Australian schol a scholar, uh, Anton Moisenko, both of those looking at the international law components of this and coming to a relatively similar conclusion that Russian central bank assets or even central bank assets writ large aren't quite as untouchable or inviolable as, again, I think folks thought even as recently as two years ago. I mean, this is a very dynamic conversation. Obviously, I'm happy to to write on it and obviously make the kind of full-throated argument in favor of this, but there are far more brilliant minds looking at the legalese of this to figure out how to actually navigate all these different elements, all these overlapping areas of legal architecture that have to be navigated if we're going to succeed. Right. No, and that's this the, the conclusion I'm kind of coming to here, and Josh, correct me if I'm wrong, but what I'm hearing is that we need to kind of divorce this from the discussion of Ukraine's reconstruction, that that 300 mil is not going to be part of the kitty we, we're going to need to rebuild Ukraine uh, after the war. And we should kind of think of it as kind of icing on the cake later in the form of reparations. Should this uh, survive all the legal challenges? Is that is that the way to look at this? We should plan for that for that outcome that would not be our preference while continuing to do our best to make it not so to, you know, I would love to be proved wrong on this and to have seizures within the next year. I would be shocked by it, though. So we did, we need to be preparing publics for the fact that the Russian Russian assets are going to take many years or decades even, and we need to, to fund re recovery and reconstruction and war on our own for now. 
just to jump in, I was going to say one one place to watch in this space moving forward is less the executive level decisions and more what we see out of legislatures. Josh, you mentioned the Canadian example. They've been leading on this out of the Canadian Parliament. Um, and, uh, you know, the, the rumblings in Washington are that those on the congressional side of things are going to be taking a lead in encouraging the executive branch to follow through on these or other methods and mechanisms. Um, I was going to say, just maybe as a final question to Josh, because I know we're running short on time here, Brian, one of the other ideas that didn't get included in my article, but I have seen floated is not seizing these assets outright, but maintaining them at a frozen level with the understanding that that 300 or so billion will eventually be paid for as a means of reparation by Russia itself, by any kind of uh, negotiated or post-Putin government, after which, only after which, those funds will be unfrozen and returned to Russian national coffers. Josh, I don't know if you've seen that idea floated anywhere. Again, I didn't mention it. It's kind of like an escrow account. In an escrow, exactly, until the Russians yeah. pay for it out of their own pocket. Yeah, and there are versions, there are elements to that included included in our our recent research. I mean, and, and the EU is acting on parts of it as well. I mean, there's different things. First of all, while it's frozen and in that escrow, it does seem like it is easier to invest the investment proceeds into rather than the principal, um, but it, it, it give that to Ukraine. So that's one thing. And then, and then yes, over over time, you, you draw from that that fund or or whatnot to fund what what we've put forward in in this international claims commission for Ukraine. And there there are precedents there. There was this. Iran U.S. Claims Tribunal and a tree Ethiopia Claims Commission. There was one related to I Iraq's unlawful invasion mm -hmm. of of Kuwait. So, Wait. but but the thing is, those those take a very long time, many many years to actually end up paying. Now, another thing, I the last thing I wanted to hit on, kind of bring us almost full circle here, is that like. The question that keeps coming to my mind now is, isn't this intrinsically good? If somebody says, if you if you seize the Russian assets and give them to Ukraine, then nobody is going to want to leave their assets in Western banks. That's kind of a simplified. My answer to that is like, I don't want kleptocrats and autocrats putting their money in Western banks. Doesn't this solve two problems at once? Just looking at the practical consideration, Josh, you're both laughing. <laughs> Josh, you're the finance guy. Am I, am I barking up the wrong tree here? <laughs> no, but but I mean, this is also part of the argument of American kleptocracy. That's why I was laughing looking at Casey. Um, but but yeah, exactly. We we don't want the morally we we don't want it, and and forever. And I think economically we don't we don't we don't need it. I mean, I'm thinking of. All of uh, Kolomoisky's investments in like steel mills in the Midwest, but but you know I know I was referring to the precedent before around around China or Dalaskas in Kentucky. Yeah, yeah. Ex exactly. Yeah, um, I was gonna say, Brian, this. No, I, I I know I kind of I, I kind of uh, you know subtweeted your argument. <laughs> hey, look, look, I, I'm gonna make a a little bit of may, maybe a controversial point. This is just my putting on my personal hat here. You know, if if we're you know again targeting Russian central bank assets. You know, I, I think I'm okay with setting the precedent that um, countries, regimes that are overseen by uh, dictators that are wanted by the International Criminal Court, that are bent on carving up non-nuclear neighbors, and that are engaging in genocidal policies. And again, call me foolish if you want. I think I'm okay without uh, them uh, hosting or without hosting their central bank assets or any other related funds in our country, in our national economy. I think that's an okay precedent to set. Yeah, no, I, I just think, I think in terms, I mean, the legal points are well taken 
the points about that it's going to damage the the the, the credibility of our of our institution our financial institutions i'm not sure about that i'm not sure like denmark's going to be nervous about you know leaving its money in america's denmark's not going to invade its neighbor and commit genocide right it, it, it's 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 going to be the putins of the world that are going to be nervous about this and yeah. you know that's good yeah. And Brian, to echo a point you have made time and time again, what would have happened again in the counterfactual if the Cold War had ended in the 1950s rather than the late 1980s, early 1990s and the differing economic models we saw then? Yeah. Because, look, this was the deal that we made. This was the arrangement that we created over a number of years following the end of the Cold War, opening these economies and opening our economy to the inflow of these questionable suspects and in many cases, illicit or dirty funds, willingly housing them, willingly laundering them. And I don't know, kind of assuming everything would be okay in the long run, except as we now know, the bill always comes due. And we're seeing that play out in Ukraine. Certainly we're seeing that play out elsewhere as well. This was always the cost we were going to pay for this. Well, you know, this was the fallacy of the of that 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 neoliberal philosophy, the, the the Washington consensus that came in after at the end of the Cold War. That, it, like, quite frankly, I bought into for a time. Um, that you know, we thought that you know conflict would be sublimated by commerce. Um, that money was politically neutral. We now know that is wrong. Um, and this is the this has got to be the biggest wake up call there could possibly be for that. But I again, coming back to the kind of the theme that's been going through this entire discussion is that this war could be an impetus for us to fix a lot of things, not just in Europe and Ukraine and in Ukraine, but here at here at home as well. There's this I, I, and the optimist in me wants to believe that we are, are are at least moving slowly in that direction. Looking at the clock, bumping up against the end, my production team is going to issue sanctions on me and seize my assets if I get this discussion going much longer. But Josh and Casey, it's been a great discussion. Any last thoughts before we wrap it up for the week? No, appreciated talking to you both. Good ideas, hard issues. You know, the, the reason why the response, among other reasons, you know, first and foremost, response been strong on, you know, by valiant Ukrainians over the past year, but in order to like, you know, make, in order to fund a reconstruction recovery that'll, that'll be worthy of that, uh, we, we need, we need to be accountable and transparent. We need trend, we need transatlantic unity. So we need to be doing the, you know, th that has been very strong over the past year. And with some of these, these tricky issues, including Russian assets, it would be possible to go in different ways and that would be a mistake so at least at the at the moment focus you know london in two weeks needs to be on the big important things that we agree on like transparency and accountability yeah right. uh, uh, just to that point brian i mean uh, uh you know just as a final comment if we don't aid the ukrainians in their success and if we don't succeed in ukraine we're just going to fail somewhere somewhere else because this mm -hmm. is the once in a generation fight that we have in front of us and we need to be focusing, obviously, on the military aspect. We need to be focusing, obviously, on the political aspect. But the theme of this conversation, as well as on the uh, economic and financial aspect as well, and having these conversations now so that we're not caught flat-footed later. Right. And as the counteroffensive has been launched as we are recording. Um, the conference in London is in two weeks. We'll be keeping a close eye on that. I will include all of the materials we discussed in this program in the show notes for our listeners. And on that note, we will wrap it up because that's all we have time for today. I'd like to remind you, you have been listening to the Power Vertical Podcast, which is produced by the University of Texas Arlene McDowell Center for Global Studies in partnership with the Atlantic Council. I'm your host. My name is Brian Whitmore. I'm an assistant professor of practice at the McDowell Center, a non-resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council's Eurasia Center. 
Joining me from Washington, D.C.'s historic Capitol Hill neighborhood has been Josh Rudolph, a senior fellow and head of Malign Finance at the German Marshall Fund's Alliance for Securing Democracy. Josh also coordinated work on Russia sanctions at the White House's National Security Council under President Barack Obama and served at USAID, the IMF, and the U.S. Treasury Department after a career on Wall Street. Josh is also one of the co-authors of the recently published report toward a Marshall Plan for Ukraine, which we will include in our show notes. And joining us from the uber-hit borough of Brooklyn, New York, has been journalist and longtime Russia watcher Casey Michelle, author of the book American Kleptocracy. Casey is also the author of the recently published article in The Atlantic, Make Russia Pay, which we'll also include in our show notes. Thank you both for an enlightening discussion and making us all a whole lot smarter. Love you, Casey. All right. I also like to thank our awesome production team in Arlington, Texas. Zachary Bell is ably filling in for Lance Ligas in the virtual control room, keeping all the lights on and all the complicated machines well-oiled and in working order throughout our discussion. Zach also handles our all-important post-production duties, cleaning up my many, many messes, and making us all sound a lot better than we do in real life. I'd also like to remind you, you can subscribe to the Power Vertical Podcast at Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, SoundCloud, and TuneIn. If you do, please leave us a big fat five-star rating and review as that helps our visibility. You can also access the podcast, read the Power Vertical blog, and access all Power Vertical products at powervertical.org. And you can follow us on the Twitter, for now at least, at Power Vertical. Join us again next week. And until then, I leave you with the ambient sound mix that's been prepared by our production team. 